This is the GC Channel podcast series, designed specially for you, the general counsel and your in-house legal teams. I'm your host, Orlando Caceres, the president and founder of First Law International. Join me and top legal experts in our discussions over trendy legal topics that keep you up at night. Let us begin. Welcome to our GC channel uh, for our next uh, interview. It's uh, it's a great pleasure for me to, to welcome uh, Vicky Brackett, who is uh, someone who does not need an introduction within FLI. Vicky is uh, someone who's very dear to, to FLI, but also um, someone who represents one of our uh, strategic partners um, in, in Europe and uh, primarily in the UK, but also members of the FLI board. So um, I'd like to, um, to welcome you, Vicky. Uh, welcome to the GC channel. And uh, we look forward to showcasing you uh, as, a, as a person, but also uh, what you're doing with Irvin Mitchell. Brilliant. You know, Thank you. As I, um, as I prepare for these interviews, and, and you know that we've been doing this for months and we've interviewed a number of, of guests and VIPs, um, this is actually the first time that we've interviewed a partner. Most of the time we interview clients and uh, our audience, our virtual audience around the world, uh, they want to know what the clients have to say. So all the lawyers are really keen to, to hear what this uh, uh, general counsel or associate general counsel wants to say. And But I think that uh, this is probably going to be one of the interviews that has the greatest degree of of, uh, reviews because you're bringing into the interview a very illustrious background. And and as I, you know, my team here did the research on your background, we were just stunned at uh, at the career that spans uh, a few decades. Uh, So so let me start out with... um, your, your starting point, right? So you're a Warwick University law graduate. Uh, so what what was that like? What was it going up there in the countryside and going to such a stellar university? It was it was great. I was um, my mum had gone to university in the evenings um, because she'd had to leave school very early. So I was kind of first generation to go and very much encouraged and supported by my family to go. We lived um, in the Peak District in Derbyshire and I was determined to be away from home, but obviously also somewhere where um, there was a strong reputation. And my ambition was to combine my linguistic ability, because I was doing A-levels in foreign languages, with law. Um, And Warwick gave me the opportunity, and it was one of the first universities at the time, I think there were four in the UK that did it, to actually do German law and English law. I'm not a qualified German lawyer, but I spent a year as part of my degree in Germany at university doing their first year law qualifications. So that was an amazing opportunity. And I think already at that age opened my eyes to the possibilities globally for us, cultural differences and the importance of those and also the opportunities that arise from those. So I think it gave me a really good grounding from an international perspective. I think so. It seems to me as we were looking back, I mean, we're talking uh, 1993. And so I thought, Wow, here is someone who already at a very early stage of her career knew that international was going to be ultimately uh, the space that she was going to make a name for herself. So uh, that was very commendable. 
Now, before we jump into the interview, because we have a number of topics that everyone is want to hear about, I thought we start out with something more about you, the person. And, and maybe uh, some people may not know that. I mean, maybe your closer circle will know, but not many people will know something that is very dear to your heart, which is that you're a trustee and a chair uh, to the PSDS um, charity, which is uh, providing support for children in Down syndrome. Why is that so special to you? Because that ties into this amazing production that Irving Mitchell just put together recently on Massive Inclusive. And I wanna hear all about that because the audience is gonna be very happy to hear about it. Yeah, and, and again, um, sort of before, before it all became um, really important from a commercial point of view, neurodiversity, um, my son was diagnosed with Down syndrome when he was born. He's nearly 50, he's nearly 16 now. Um, and that was an undiagnosed, it was undiagnosed in pregnancy. So a real surprise um, to us. And when we looked around for support for him at a very early age, there was nothing there. So together with two other ladies who were amazing, who I befriended through them also having children with Down syndrome, we formed a very small charity, six, six mums, um, and got some speech therapy for our kids because there was nothing out there. And that's grown now to over 120 families. We provide full educational support in preschool years, right through um, to school um, training teachers in terms of the learning profile of children with Down syndrome. And are now looking at our teenage strategy around how we encourage independence and friendships in that community and get them integrated into our community. I'm really lucky that Sam, my son, has stayed in mainstream school right up to year 11. So he will be leaving at the end of this year I can't quite believe that my baby is leaving school um and we're looking at the next stage of his life but he's a very well integrated into the community and I just really support the neurodiversity inclusion agenda that is live at the moment in this country and across the world because the benefits we get from people who have different challenges in life are just incredible and I've you know it's taught me something and it's changed me as a person so I've been really fortunate to have that background but of course also a very busy trustee because <laughs> we're constantly raising money and having to run it as a business you know there's there's a lot of obligations around the trustees I have a great trustee group that I work with really closely and it's again just a bit of a richness to who I am and what I bring I think. Well and that was to me um, very telling uh, you and I have been working in a professional setting for, for years now, uh, but there's this part of the persona that what we only came to, to know now. And, and I was very impressed. You know, we always like to rewrite history and, and, and edit the parts of our lives that we don't want the world to know. And yet you seized uh, this challenge that, that life threw you. And you've done something amazing. You said 130 families that have been enriched as a result of your big heart to, to want to do something for your own son. But in the process, a lot of other teenagers are also dealing with life in a much better place. How did that make you feel as a person to actually see this flourish over the years? A bit surprised, I think, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, humbled. Um, it's interesting. My son actually doesn't get the benefit because we try everything out on him because he's one of the oldest in the charity. So by the time he's finished with it, it's perfect for the next the, ne the people coming through. But I, I think look, there's there's a huge amount, isn't there? There's a team of trustees that do this. That's an incredibly empowering environment to be in because they're all doing that for free. They're all doing that out of the goodness of their heart and because they feel passionate about it. And working with people who are passionate about a purpose 
is really, really, it's just so motivated and so inspiring. So I think I'm inspired by them. I'm inspired by the children. I mean, these children and young adults that we work with just do not let anything get in their way. And some of the days where we're all having a bit of a grumble, just think of some of the challenges that they face every day and we hear no no moans at all um, and they just get on with it and they take what they can and then the families themselves who you know go from being overly joyful about these children through to really really in despair about how they can find the best support and it's not the best you know agenda to navigate and being able to help them navigate that I think is is personally rewarding um I, I, I don't do it for the personal gain I do it for the children but obviously through that you learn about yourself um and you know I, I think I've learned a lot about leadership as well and I've learned a lot about other people and thinking before I engage with people and whilst I'm engaging with people about how they may be feeling um, what might be going on in the background in their own lives as you say it's not something you and I have really talked about before but that's going on in my day-to-day life every day um, and I think just remembering that occasionally is really is really important. You know it's very interesting you pointed out that that um, that challenged is framed who you are as a person, but it's also made you a better leader. And I think that the world could use a little compassionate and kindness in being a, a strong leader, right? I mean, they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. You don't have to be a, a dislikable, cantankerous uh, person to be a tough leader because you're feared. You could be just as empathetic and compassionate and kind and yet be firm. Uh, with your with your uh, subordinates and those that, that that report to you, and you can still inspire them to action. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was talking actually yesterday with someone who looks at personal effectiveness and personal development because that's quite. I'm quite passionate about that. I, I believe there's a better us in all of us. I think you know we we work with some amazing people, but there's always something to aspire for. And if you're going to aspire and help people to aspire, you have to be really honest with some of the things they do need to continue to develop. But those who are willing to learn embrace that really well. And if it's presented in the right way, that can be a real opportunity for them to move, move forward. But getting that right sometimes is a bit tricky and having difficult conversations is a bit, is a bit difficult. But I think trying to frame it properly around their improvement, their development, them being better in their role and I, th- I think it can still be as inspirational. Don't always get it right. <laughs> but when you do get it right, you, you really know and you see those people fly. And isn't that an amazing thing to work with people and alongside people and for people and as their leader and see them fly themselves? I mean, that's what we want for our kids. And that's what we want for the people we work with. And I, 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 that's rewarding every day for me when I see that happen. Well, that ties very well. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. I think that's a a piece of uh, a slide of view that I think the audience is going to be very, um, very moved by. Uh, most of us, uh, you know, we like to keep our cards close to our chest and we don't want to show our vulnerabilities. And here you are, someone who I'm going to interview at a very high level, who is very, um, very open about, hey, I was the first one to make university uh, in, in my family and my mom did it at night. And and, and then I already knew what I wanted. And I started to, to go after my dreams at a time that, it, like you said, it was not very 
Um, it was not politically correct. You, you've sort of been bucking the system for years and years, but this ties very nicely into this recent production that Irvin Mitchell just did uh, with, with inclusion and in people of all types of disabilities or what we call now the differently able yeah. uh, individuals. That was a very moving production. What was that, all that about? So I think a couple of things as a headline point, um, probably one of the things we are really well known for, and we're number one in our field um, in the UK, is our personal injury work. And what that does is it brings our business into contact with families and individuals who've gone through some fairly horrific life-changing incidences. And that can be anything from, I mean, we've, we've worked with terrorist victims, you know, big, big incident victims, but also birth injury and injury that happens during life and has catastrophic effects that none of us ever envisaged um, living through in our lifetime. And I think that brings a compassion into the business that is real and it's palpable. And I work, as you know, um, Orlando, with business clients. So really, you know, different from those clients. But actually, that compassion is in all of our team at Owen Mitchell. And I believe we all, as business leaders, business owners, working with businesses, we all have that compassion within us. And if we can pull that out, it makes us unique and it makes our experience of working with each other really great. So I think that's the first point. It's DNA here for us um, that we are inclusive and that we understand and try to understand and learn from people who have these challenges in their lives. Um, and we've always done some um, TV advertising because that is a really good market channel for our personal injury teams. Um, and over the last few years, we've tried to expand that to a much more diverse audience um, perspective because we work with businesses, as I've said, we work with private client individuals and obviously then the, the, the injured the injured clients. Um, and, you know, we've seen actually through COVID that some of the larger corporations, Microsoft, for example, have started to advertise on the television for business and consumer audiences. So that move to being applicable to a wider audience has been something we've been really interested in testing out. And that's what the latest campaign seeks to do. So you'll see in that advert campaign, business clients in there talking about how they personally experience the time they spent with us as a firm, private clients, the same injured clients. And then somebody, you know, brilliant idea, absolutely can claim no credit for it said, well, how about if we get a production cast together where everybody has some form of disability and that's exactly what we did so the photographer in that um uh in making that advert, advert had um a vision where it's it's literally a tiny pinprick of light that he can see through each eye but I mean if you look at the campaign the photography is amazing but everybody everybody on that set had some kind of challenge or disability um that makes them you know makes them ha have different views on life different perspective on life and and the richness of it was amazing and I think you're probably talking about the the film we made of how the advert was made it's actually more powerful than the advert yes. I mean, it brought me to tears absolutely brought me to tears but I think it encapsulates who we are and I don't think it's a a thing Owen Mitchell it's not something to tick the box on you know and I'm doing a lot of ESG talking at the moment and the S part of that is just live and palpable in the organisation. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud to to lead the team that thought of that and 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 just made did an incredible job. So I think it just encapsulates who we are um, and what we're about. That's that's incredible, and uh, it does 
it does speak very loud, right? I mean, the, the, the film, the, the film behind the scenes, as you said, is a lot more human because they're interviewing the cast yeah. of the performers and you have a blind person, you have a deaf person, you have a wheelchair person and they put this together and it, it's no small feat. It's um, it's a very, very well done. In fact, the, the ones that appear to be the less able were the normal people. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, anyway, but but then I know that you've recently participated in a roundtable for ESG, and and I know that's becoming now the talk of the town. Um, you know the 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 responsibility as a, as a big law firm uh, to to be considered uh, with the environment and, and social responsibility to again the less able and those that are facing hardship through COVID. And also governance, you know, self-imposing restraints to overspending or spending, you know, in, in areas that really bring no value to your staff or your future. Um, why, why did you make the time? And I know you're, you're a very busy speaker and a number of things, but why was this panel of ESG so important to you personally? Um, I think there's two. I think there's two things to it. I think first of all, every element of the ESG agenda is important. Obviously, the G element is something as a lawyer I've been familiar with and grown up with, and it's something we all all just can't avoid. Um, so, so it's here and it's here to stay. And increasing regulation um, will continue. The S, I think we've talked about a lot. For me, it's part of me. Um, that inclusion, the diversity. You know, I was. Uh, I was a female managing partner at 41 and that was really unique within the profession. I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the first female, but I was in a very small minority. So bringing that diversity to board, I was the first female board member at Owen Mitchell. I think I recognize not the power that I bring, but the power that that diversity brings to the board. So that's been true to me. And, and the environmental piece I think I think where I'd put that in my own head is my interest is really peaked because of what my children are telling me and how passionate they are, which doesn't mean I'm not passionate about it. I think it's a really, really important topic. But thinking about the future generations and looking at some of the statistics around where the planet could get to, you know, it, it's it's sobering as a thought. And I think that there is an obligation on us all, you know, to do something about that. And there are things that we can do and bringing that to the forefront, I think is important. So I think all of that is why for me, talking about that, those topics is important. But equally, the other point from my perspective is, I really want to try to normalize this. I think people get frightened by, gosh, we must do something. ESG is here. What's everyone else doing? I'm not quite sure what I need to do. I'm not quite sure how to measure this. I don't know what we should be doing. How do we embed it in our strategy? Almost take a pause, find two or three things, focus on what's important to your business's purpose, to your life's purpose, and really focus down on that. Think about how you could measure that and prove that. And there's not a, you know, it's not a race. We all have got some responsibility to be there, but we're all learning together on this. And the more we can collaborate, the more we can share our own vulnerability in this space, because no one's got it cracked. I think the more powerful we become as a force. And I think, you know, just analogizing that to the FLI, Orlando, one of the things we've talked about is the diversity of law firm across the world that FLI brings together 
The power is in the force of the whole rather than in the individual law firms. They're all brilliant in their own right. So, again, that collaboration strength on topics like this that are emerging, I think, is just really powerful. So anything I can do to facilitate the conversation and make people feel that it's an accessible topic rather than one that just feels enormous. I mean, it does feel enormous, but try and make it a little bit more accessible. Then I'd be I'm delighted to to, to do that. You know, it's interesting that you you say that. Um... You know, there, there's a few factors here, right? There is the the doomsdayers that are creating havoc for the younger generation. You know, they're 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 going through a lot of stress, just wondering what's going on in the future. It's very timely that you and I have in this interview when the world's leaders just met in in, in Scotland trying to figure this out, and it was uh, it was very startling to hear um, your prime minister uh, sort of talk in terms of what each degree. Uh, would impact the world. Um, mm-hmm. That was, I, I thought, very sobering. But, but what you're saying again is, is I keep hearing this echo throughout your interview that it's okay to talk about it, but let's normalize it. Let's bring some action to things that we can do. Let's not get lost in the despair of, oh my goodness, I, there's nothing I can do here. Pick one, two, or three things that you're passionate about. Take action. Bring those around you, network, and then you mentioned FLI, and of course we're gonna we're gonna get into that. So as we look back, uh, Vicky, at, at this point in time, history has been very busy <laughs> in the last few years. What would you say are uh, the lessons learned thus far as history evolves uh, on Brexit? What in 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 the context of your view of the world and how that's going to create opportunities and challenges for Irvin Mitchell? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. I think um, I think there are we knew always along, right from the start, from the day that it was announced it was going to happen. As a lawyer, I could sit there objectively, regardless of my own opinion on it, and say, right, there will be opportunities coming out of this. And there'll be challenges. So where are those opportunities? Let's think about those. And, you know, going back to the ESG point, practically, what are the things that are going to hit our business? And how do we mitigate that so that over the period of time, and we had a long time, didn't we? We had four, four years, five years <laughs> to get ourselves ready for this. Over that period, we make ourselves as, <clears throat> as ready for this as we can. I think there was also a little bit for me, and this is probably it's a very personal view and probably a bit contentious. There was a bit of Emperor's New Clothes, Millennium Bug, Y2K Bug about it became enormous and we must be ready and we must prepare. And, and then it all happened. I don't know whether it was because it happened during COVID, but it all felt a little bit, oh, right, yeah, Brexit just happened. I think we are now seeing the implications of some of that practically around supply chains, some of our, you know, employee shortages certainly here in the UK we are definitely seeing that whether that's a COVID COVID impact whether that's a Brexit impact whether it's absolutely nothing to do with either of them or a combination of all of them I I can't tell you that but there's no coincidence I don't think that um, we have engaged in a different set of trade relations and you know we have got we've we've got some challenges that are arising out of out of that so I think um, opportunities were always going to be there. I think looking at it from an international point of view, the first thing I would mention, I would say is it's caused us as a business and certainly our international team to think, 
okay, what what are the opportunities for this? The government in the UK is negotiating trade deals across the world. Um, we are forming alliances with business with countries which we've always had relationships with, but in a different way. Um, we're looking at everything through a different lens. We're looking at our European neighbours through a different lens. And when we're doing that, what are the opportunities that that can bring? So we're following the government's um, path through the different trade deals quite carefully, because as those trade deals get agreed and are active, there are opportunities for us on an international platform. And going again back to FLI, because of the breadth of the network of law firms across our community, everywhere the government is going on a trade deal, we will have friendly firms that we are able to engage with and start to talk about the opportunities that are arising out of that at the moment the world is talking about the UK and a particular country. I think post-COVID, I mean, COVID caused, I think, accelerated some of the globalisation we were seeing anyway. Um, and, you know, globalisation was one of the comforts I had going into Brexit, that we look, we're looking at a global platform rather than simply a European platform. Uh, we're just a different player on that platform. Now we're out of the European community. Um, but I think we're seeing interesting relationships pop up between dif different countries as the globalisation occurs and sort of nations get closer. And we've definitely just joined the Commonwealth um, Economic Advisory Council as one of their law firms. Um, and we're interested in the Commonwealth as a network that can really work with us as a business um, because it spans so much of the world and our clients' activities, interests are going well beyond the European footplate and we need to be able to respond internationally to that. So I think in short, Brexit for us brought some of the things we expected um, I think it hasn't probably been so far as challenging as I thought it might be. And I think actually where we've moved to quite quickly is looking at our relationships across the world rather than just within the European Union to say, where are the opportunities? And of course, with the networks that we're involved in and the community that FLI provides, I think we're really well placed to do that. So we're looking at it as a positive. Um, that doesn't mean to say that businesses aren't being hit and frustrated by many things that may or may not be Brexit related, but likely are. Um, and we're dealing with clients with those challenges all the time. So I'm not trying to underplay that. But I do think there are an equal amount of opportunities through this if we keep our minds open and we look at the world as a whole. But, you know, when you when you summarize that, I, you know, I'm sure that the, the audience that is going to be listening, you know, there's always going to be those pundits and those skeptics that are going to say, well, yeah, but that's, uh, that's, that's now speaking from hindsight, you know, and, and this is why I thought it would be interesting for the audience to get to know you as a person. Um, and there's something that you said that I wanted to come back to, because um, people tend to forget how we got to now, you know, they forget the journey. They forget that, you know, as you said, you were one of the very first female managing partners of your former firm, where you almost spent two decades of your life. So you earn your stripes, you play the game in a primarily male-dominated environment where it was unheard of to have a female partner, let alone a managing partner. And then you then, from that great experience that prepared you with some tools and skills, you then migrated to your current job with Irving Mitchell. But even there, very quickly, uh, you became a regional um, uh, chief executive officer 
uh, for business and legal services. So that already tells me and it tells the audience that this journey has been something that you've been after for quite some time, uh, where now you have been recently, um, I don't want to say promoted, but you know what I mean. You've been recently mandated um, to, to be the, um, uh, the, the, the group chief commercial officer, uh, which actually expands your, your foothold to the world. I mean, now this is a global um, ability for you to make a difference through the forces of Irvin Mitchell. Tell me a little bit about the journey to, to get to this point for Irvin Mitchell to empower you to, to say, okay, you're now going to be the voice, you're going to be the face, and, and maybe uh, in, in, a, in a funny way, the voice as in like the, the musical show where you're supposed to be singing and people will identify who you are. But you know what I mean? The voice, the face, the sound of the new Irvin Mitchell. I, I love the new rebranding of expert hands, but with a new personal touch. Tell me a little, a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, again, I think it goes back to the type of organisation that Erwin Mitchell is. As you say, I joined Erwin Mitchell in 2015. So six years ago, I joined Erwin Mitchell on an acquisition. So they acquired my former firm where I was managing partner. Um, and obviously, they didn't need two managing partners coming into the business. So my role really at the start was focused very much on integration of the two businesses. So frankly, keeping the people on board, making them understand the reasons for us coming into a larger organisation, which was driven by the capabilities I thought a larger organisation could offer us, including on the global stage, because I think, you know, as a local firm, that was much harder to do. And I could see the growth opportunities that were coming from there. Um, and as you say, after about nine months, I was asked to lead our business division. And you know, that was flattering for me, absolutely. But again, it goes back to the type of firm, having the confidence to offer that role to somebody who you've only really known for nine months, which was the group CEO's decision at the time, I think is, is a testament to him and to the board at the time that they were willing to give something new a chance. Um, and, you know, I worked with an amazing team and had the great support of the board for the next four years to really build that business and our reputation there. And again, back to a brave board and a brave CEO, we reorganized ourselves in May, as you've alluded to. And I, I don't think, I'm not sure I got promoted, but I definitely got changed my job um, to become the chief commercial officer because we reorganized our business into, into two, to, to really reflect the two aspects of a growing business. The first is, well, who looks after our growth strategy? Who wakes up every day and thinks about how this business can grow? And who's going to look after our service delivery, our law, legal teams? Uh, making sure client need is delivered in exactly the way that the clients would like it to be delivered. So the COO role was created, which was my colleague who'd been running the personal legal services division and me from the business legal service division took on the, the growth strategy. And I, th and I think what led to that, certainly, certainly what I was told, was playing to our individual strengths. So my colleague, um, who's the CEO, COO, sorry, um, you know, very brilliant at service delivery, efficiency, running the legal teams. And my passion has always been the market, the clients, what the clients need. And we took a really brave decision, I think, to go client-centric in our strategy. Law firms are very, very 
good at selling what they do. So we go to clients, we tell them what we do and we're brilliant at what we do and we are. Um, But I think what's more powerful when you engage with clients, first of all, is to listen to those clients, but actually is to really hear what their need is and to really hear what they value and try and adapt what you provide back to them in that way. Um, And I don't think there's a law firm on this planet that would say they don't try to do that, but we put that right at the heart of our strategy. So every operational decision we make, we look to say, well, does that really reflect client need and value? Is that going to enhance it? Is it going to help the growth strategy? So it's a brave way to reorganize a law firm. I'm not aware of any other law firm in the UK that's organized in the way that we are. Um, Certainly, my first experiences in the first six months have been incredible. We've brought legal professionals and business development professionals together in one team with one purpose and one goal. And the power they fire off each other in that is incredible. And we've learned from each other. I mean, I've learned so much in this role already. Um, And I really think there's a huge opportunity for growth. So I think the structure really helps that. And of course, we all know a structure must support your strategy and your goals. And I think it does that brilliantly. So I think it's a brave business to have done it. I think um, it's a business that's looking forward. And it's a really strong reflection, I think, of the CEO's um, values and principles and his own personality um, to to give me this opportunity and to entrust me with, you know, helping the firm to achieve its its really ambitious growth growth goals. Well, I, you know, I I think that you're uh, you're being a little a little too humble here. I just (laughs) happen to know the word in the street that this was a very well thought out decision. This was not, oh, we like Vicky, let's just give her a shot. Um, But I think you said it, you know, who wakes up in the morning and is now thinking 24-7 of different ways to grow the business. And the title uh, says everything, and yet it says nothing because it's really the person, right? You're the group officer, but you're also a chief commercial officer. So it's about the business. And what you said a minute ago, and, and when I talked to you a few weeks back, you said, um, and, and that's a very uh, sobering statement. You said, I don't believe that any law firm, certainly in the UK, has reorganized themselves, rebranded themselves, refocused their vision as we now have at Irving Mitchell. And that's not a small thing to say. And, and you know, of course, the pundits and the sarcastic uh, critics are going to say, ah, well, everybody says that, but but you really mean it. Why do you feel that Irvin Mitchell, as, as the largest firm in the UK, um, has rebranded itself with, in fact, there's a new game in town? What? Why would you say that? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I don't think we are the largest firm in the UK, but yeah, we're one of the largest. Um, I, I think... Um, I think it's more about how we've organized us. I think the uniqueness is in how we've organized ourselves and formed the roles behind the growth strategy, because traditionally law firms have just looked at their service line offering. And the reason we've done that is because we think that's the best way to truly absorb client need and understand it and value. You have to have a dedicated set of people who are, working not only with what the markets are doing externally, so external input, but also constantly with the clients and feeding that back into the strategy to say, well, this strategy needs to keep tweaking and be evolving um, in order to be really relevant. Because client client need 
changes all the time. And I don't know about you, Orlando, but quite often when I'm speaking to clients, they actually don't really, they can't really articulate what they need. What they, they actually just want you to help them get to the solution. And I always say to the business, what we're trying to do is help you achieve your strategy. Yes, we might be the legal arm of helping you to achieve that strategy, making sure you're doing it properly, making sure you're regulatory compliant, making sure we're navigating you through the pitfalls that may be put in your way by the uh, by the legislative system and you know business generally um but you've got to be listening all the time and and I think we going back to the PI sort of brand and ethos you have to do that with individual clients who are in traumatic situations because humans need empathy and humans need sympathy and humans need this to be really relevant to us. So on the brand point around expert hand human touch, there's that professionalism, which I think all clients would expect and all law firms <clears throat> would say they offer and do. The human touch bit is the part we say distinguishes us. And again, that comes from our history, which is around having to be incredibly empathetic in really traumatic times. Now, translate that into a business environment those sorts of words probably aren't quite as strong. But actually, if you're a CEO or an FD or a GC leading quite a difficult strategy, you're either an aspirant company or you're in a challenge zone or you're trying to disrupt a market, they are quite emotional times. I mean, I've, I've been through many times in my board positions, you know, growing something, rebuilding something, reforming something, rethinking something, thinking about our market, thinking about our people, how you bring them with you. It's quite emotional. And having someone alongside you to do that, I think, is really important. And if we can help play that part in even a small way, I think that that is critical and is a true differentiator. I think you're right. The cynics are absolutely going to say, but we all do that. That's what we all do. Maybe we all do. The clients are the only ones that can tell us that. I believe that we believe in our in the power to do it and I believe we listen hard we don't always get it right we are still very much on that journey um but but we're willing to learn and we're listening hard um, and I think we'll get there well and that that I think kind of brings us into timing is everything and I and I remember in a in a previous conversation with you how strongly you felt about um the relationship with with First Law International and why, um, why then, why now, and what is it that you felt? And I would, I would like to explore that with you a, a little bit more in more detail now for this audience. You know, there are different ways to network. There are different groups out there. Uh, but the way you presented this uh, to me last time we talked is that you felt that there is a... Um, a, a, an ecosystem, a, a private community of like-minded uh, members that really want to change the game in this industry. And um, it was very refreshing because I typically, I'm the one who's sharing that story with, with our clients. And it was very refreshing for me to hear one of our partners and one of our uh, elite members in, in the board to, to share it with me. And now I, I think the, the audience would love to hear it. Why is it that you feel that the synergies that we've created with, with First Law and with yourselves does in fact speak quite uh, robustly to the, to the clientele 
that this is not another group of firms, that this is really a community. Yeah. Yeah. And we've obviously learned through working with you over the last few years, Orlando, the the power of this. I mean, I call it an ecosystem, a community. Um, And it is more. It goes well beyond a network for me. And, and And I think just a few things. I think the first thing is to say that all the firms within our FLI community are aspirant firms. They are firms that have made a conscious decision in the main to be specialists in their own jurisdiction rather than necessarily focusing a huge amount of investment globally. Some some do have overseas offices, but generally they are specialists. They're local. They're our best local black brand, but all with a very strong global outlook. So we share a kind of purpose and strategic position, I think, which is really important. I think the firms in the community that I've encountered, we've worked with are hungry. They're hungry for growth. They're hungry for being really good and providing that best possible client service. So we share we share that with them. Um, and, and I'm not saying within a global law firm, you wouldn't get that same hunger across the global law firm's network. Um, but you're engaging a new firm each time your client wants to engage in a new territory. And I think that makes a huge difference because I think, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's a new engagement. And isn't that quite complicated? We're really experienced in project managing cases across the world. And having worked on global cases within a global firm, you still need to do that project management if it's a global firm. So I think I think that's a non-point. But I think the energy that comes out of each of these individual firms is really high. And, and I've really been, I think clients have benefited from that. I think the second thing is we are able to say to our clients, this is the best firm in jurisdiction for you. They are locally based. They've been there for years. Their history is local. Their cultural knowledge is superb. Um, and they can understand the differences that that client is going to encounter through those different cultures. So I think we can really accent that differentiation for the client and make sure that their hand is held and they're navigated properly through the cultural differences that they may or may not expect. So effectively, for me, it's an ecosystem, a community with a stellar roster of top-notch firms. They're aspirant firms. They share a vision and a passion about international work. Um, they're all hungry for that client. They all want to please that client because it's usually a new client to, to each of those firms. Um, and we coordinate that service really brilliantly, has been my, my experience. Uh, and the last thing, which I don't think should be underestimated, everybody I have met through this community, you know, are values-based and they are really nice people to work with. And they are commercial and they're focused and they're tough. Um but they want to work collaboratively. They want to listen. They want to learn. Um, and we have some really strong relationships now with firms that we've met through our first or international relationship. Um, and they're special relationships to us because we've really valued the people that we've met on that journey. So I think there are lots of aspects, Orlando, that we could talk about for ages and maybe we can expand on. But those would be my headlines. Okay. <clears throat> well, I, you know, it's always, like I said, it's very... For me personally, after all these years pushing the proverbial wheel, um, it's very refreshing to hear someone like you, especially especially you with with your touch in your background and the personal development that you've been through uh, with all the challenges that you've faced to, to get to this point and say, 
not only are they the best in-country law firms with, with incredible know-how, and we, we share a common vision, and we share a common passion, and they're hungry. It, it's almost like, like you said, it's, it's a community. It's not, it's not just a, a group of uh, firms networking. But I think the last thing you said sums it up. You said these are people that are nice to work with. We enjoy the human touch. Um, but you know, that's that's where the 20 years in the make comes from, right? This this is what is taking so long to build. FLI has been around for two decades. And to be able to find these uh, needles around the world and then create the community, it's what's made this so so special. Now, as we look to the future, post-Brexit or going through that, uh, as you explained, and now whether in the post-COVID era, what that's going to be like, I think everyone would love to hear from you, Vicky, um, the bright future ahead of us. Where do you see yourselves with FLI as the global platform? Where, where are we going to leap into and how does that really become the powerhouse brand that we all want and change the rules of the game for the benefit of our clients. Yeah, I, um, I think it's a really brilliant time for FLI. And just on your 20 years in the making point, I, I read a book the other day um, and there was a joke in there that I remember my kids used to tell me, which was how do you eat an elephant? And it was in small bit, in small bites. Um, and I think things that are formed beautifully, um, incrementally, and with a really strong foundation have that ability to survive. And certainly based on what I know about FLI, is it's been well thought through at every stage of its evolution. So I think time gives us experience, gives us gravitas, gives us knowledge, but um, it also shows how stable a foundation that we've got. And I think that's really critical as, frankly, the world changes slightly it kind of feels like the world shifted a bit on its axis predominantly I would say through COVID there's a Brexit element to that as well but I think that's fairly contained within within Europe um, but I think being at home we're all in our houses has brought us closer together as a community and almost made where we're sitting an irrelevance which makes business opportunities um, more accessible or feel more accessible, you know, for the smaller business, for the business with one in one GC that's perhaps in quite a lonely place, trying to connect across the world. That's that's quite a difficult job. And I know that from our own growth strategy. Um, we believe, Owen Mitchell, that our best growth is going to come out of the international community, not because we're suddenly going to become famous on the international stage, although that would be lovely, but actually because our clients' global outlook is widening all the time. And the community, because we trust each other, because we've got that shared purpose, because we've got that common goal, I think allows us to think about issues that are arising in different jurisdictions quite quickly so it can share news and knowledge so we can identify opportunities for our client. And part of client value is taking to them things that perhaps they haven't thought about already. So knowing where a client's strategy is headed and then seeing something perhaps in a new jurisdiction and saying, did you know about this? Which we gain our knowledge through the community, I think, is incredibly valuable from a client need point of view. I think also the breadth of the FLI community 
is really interesting because I think it's 81 jurisdictions we're in now. You'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. 80, 81 jurisdictions that we, we cover. The ability to flex that when we see different world relationships and trade relationships emerge um, is really palpable. We aren't, you know, individually as firms, we are not committed to a particular real estate footprint that needs preserving and maintaining and we've got to make it work in these particular countries because that's where we've decided to put our flag this gives each of the firms within our community the real opportunity to dial up and dial down in different jurisdictions as they see their client needs change and I think that's incredibly important and I think as as I said earlier the trade relations emerge post-Brexit as our clients' horizons remain wide, as that ability to do things digitally has been accelerated, the opportunities are immense. As I say, we see it as a really strong pillar of our own growth strategy with Mitchell. So we look forward to a really fantastic future relationship with FLI and being a important, hopefully important member of the community that can contribute well. Well, I, I predicted this was going to happen because we're out of time. We're out of time. I mean, it's amazing how quickly we came to the end of the interview. And I look forward to uh, round two. But I can't let you go, really, without asking um, for you to, you know, what is the advice that you would like to give to these young women out there in the profession that are starting their journey where you're now um, in, in a position of maturity where you can look back and you can see the challenges. Of course, it's a different world and the world, thank goodness, has become much more inclusive, but we're still not there. And, and young women who are ambitious, as you were at the time, who want to differentiate themselves, as you did at the time, what's in, what, what is the advice of someone like Vicky Brackett can share to them? I'm sure that the female community, both clients and solicitors and lawyers around the world would love to hear your closing remarks of words of wisdom before we come back to uh, interview number two. Okay. Yeah. Great question. I, uh, maybe I'm being too humble. I think I learned, I learned what to do in a world that was very, it was, it was more difficult, I think, for females to, to succeed. I, I really believe the world has embraced diversity far more extensively now. So I am hopeful that young women um, today and and other minority uh, groups that we've seen across the profession uh, will have much better opportunities. But but my advice would be the same for anybody. I don't think it matters about sex, race, gender, um, sexual orientation. I think it is be your true self, be authentic, be passionate, care about the people that you work with. Um, yeah, look out for yourself, but actually look out for everybody else around you as well um, and I believe if you're truly passionate about something if you are if you maintain your confidence and that's not always easy to do there are moments where I've had significant wobbles in my career but trying to keep on an even keel um, and remain authentic tell somebody you're having a wobble um, people re respond really well to that human beings respond well to authenticity and I think that's one of my biggest lessons and I think the other part, part is Find someone who can be a mentor, someone you can bounce things off, not necessarily someone in the business, someone externally, a mate, someone you've worked with previously. We can just go and have a conversation about some of the challenges and just release some of that pressure, which allows you to come back into the working environment with some objectivity, a little bit of perspective, 
um, and as I say, an, an ability then to express that authenticity without necessarily always feeling quite emotional. Because I think sometimes being too emotional can detract from, from what you're you're trying to say. So getting that balance right is quite hard. So for me, it was always having a mentor. It was always having someone to talk to. And it was always being true to myself and my values. And that isn't always easy to do. But if you can try and do that most of the time, I think everybody who is listening to this will if they're not already having a brilliantly successful career, will will at least enjoy that experience. Fantastic. Well, Vicky Brackett, there you have it. Someone who started in Warwick and now is a global business chief officer uh, of one of UK's leading firms, a stellar member of Frisco International, and uh, a very respected member of the advisory board. Delighted to have in the program and uh, look forward to fixing another opportunity to continue. We'd love to hear your thoughts more on technology, the impact that that's having in the digital world, as well as as something you mentioned earlier, the challenges of keeping on to talent, attrition, and uh, the difficulty to find them out there, the millennials who don't want to come to the office. So well, they want they want different things. Some of them definitely, definitely want to be in the office, but they definitely have a different outlook. And we did. And but there's actually a good conversation to have later. Some really common themes between where I was at their age and where they are. I'm not sure we are that dissimilar. I think we just express ourselves in slightly different ways. But yeah, good conversation to follow on with, I'm sure. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you very much. And Welcome. Uh, thanks for having have me. A great rest of the day, and we will be back to you shortly. Thank you. Thank you to the audience. We hope you've enjoyed this interview with Vicky Brackett from Irvin Mitchell. Until then, have a great day. Thank you for listening today. Enjoy this episode of the General Counsel Podcast. Then head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I look forward to catching up with you over our next episode. And don't forget, you heard it here first. First.